Section two of Beacon Lights of History, Volume Seven Great Women by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Abelard belonged by nature to the skeptical school. He delighted in negotiations and in the work of demolition. So far as he demolished or ridiculed error, he rendered the same service as Voltaire did. He prepared the way for a more inquiring spirit. He was also more liberal than his opponents. His spirit was progressive, but his method was faulty. Like all those who have sought to undermine the old systems of thought, he was naturally vain and conceited. He supposed he had accomplished more than he really had. He became bold in his speculations, and undertook to explain subjects beyond his grasp. Thus he professed to unfold the meaning of the prophecies of Ezekiel. He was arrogant in his claims to genius. It is not by long study, said he, that I have mastered the heights of science, but by the force of my mind. This flippancy, accompanied by wit and eloquence, fascinated young men. His auditors were charmed. The first philosopher, they said, had become the first divine. New pupils crowded his lecture room, and he united lectures on philosophy with lectures on divinity. Theology and philosophy encircled his brow with a double garland. So popular was he that students came from Germany and Italy and England to hear his lectures. The number of his pupils, it is said, was more than five thousand, and these included the brightest intellects of the age, among whom one was destined to be a pope, the great Innocent III, nineteen to be cardinals, and one hundred to be bishops. What a proud position for a young man! What an astonishing success for that age! And his pupils were as generous as they were enthusiastic. They filled his pockets with gold, they hung upon his lips with rapture, they extolled his genius wherever they went, they carried his picture from court to court, from castle to castle, and convent to convent. They begged for a lock of his hair, for a shred of his garment. Never was seen before such idolatry of genius, such unbounded admiration for eloquence, for he stood apart and different from all other lights, preeminent as a teacher of philosophy. He reigned, said Lamartine, by eloquence over the spirit of youth, by beauty over the regard of women, by love-songs which penetrated all hearts, by musical melodies repeated by every mouth. Let us then imagine in a single man the first orator, the first philosopher, the first poet, the first musician of the age. Cicero, Plato, Petrarch, Schubert, all united in one living celebrity, and we can form some idea of his attractions and fame at this period of his life. Such was that brilliant but unsound man, with learning, fame, personal beauty, fascinating eloquence, dialectical acumen, aristocratic manners, and transcendent wit, who encountered at thirty-eight the most beautiful, gracious, accomplished, generous, and ardent woman that adorned that time. Only eighteen, thirsting for knowledge, craving for sympathy, and intensely idolatrous of intellectual excellence. But one result could be anticipated from such a meeting. They became passionately enamored of each other. In order to secure a more uninterrupted intercourse, Abelard sought and obtained a residence in the house of Fulbert, under pretense of desiring to superintend the education of his niece. The ambitious, vain, unsuspecting priest was delighted to receive so great a man, whose fame filled the world. He entrusted Heloise to his care, with permission to use blows if they were necessary to make her diligent and obedient. And what young woman, with such a nature and under such circumstances, could resist the influence of such a teacher? I need not dwell on the familiar story, how mutual admiration was followed by mutual friendship, and friendship was succeeded by mutual infatuation, and the gradual abandonment of both to a mad passion, forgetful alike of fame and duty. 
it became tedious said abelard to go to my lessons i gave my lectures with negligence i spoke only from habit and memory i was only a reciter of ancient inventions and if i chanced to compose verses they were songs of love not secrets of philosophy the absence of his mind evinced how powerfully his new passion moved his fiery and impatient soul he consumed his time in writing verses to the canon's niece and even as hercules in the gay court of omphale threw down his club in order to hold the distaff so abelard laid aside his sceptre as a monarch of the schools to sing sonnets at the feet of heloise and she also still more unwisely in the mighty potency of an absorbing love yielded up her honor and her pride this mutual infatuation was it would seem a gradual transition from the innocent pleasure of delightful companionship to the guilt of unrestrained desire it was not premeditated design not calculation but insidious dalliance thou knowest how guiltless first i met thy flame when love approached me under friendship's name guiltless i gazed heaven listened when you sung and truths divine came mended from your tongue from lips like those what precept failed to move too soon they taught me twas no sin to love in a healthy state of society this mutual passion would have been followed by the marriage ties the parties were equal in culture and social position and abelard probably enjoyed a large income from the fees of students and could well support the expenses of a family all that was needed was the consecration of emotions which are natural and irresistible a mystery perhaps but ordained and without which marriage would be mere calculation and negotiation passion doubtless is blind but in this very blindness we see the hand of the creator to battle selfishness and pride what would become of our world if men and women were left to choose their partners with the eye of unclouded reason expediency would soon make a desert of earth and there would be no paradise found for those who were unattractive or in adverse circumstances friendship might possibly bring people together but friendship exists only between equals and people of congenial tastes love brings together also those who are unequal it joins the rich to the poor the strong to the weak the fortunate to the unfortunate and thus defeats the calculations which otherwise would enter into matrimonial life Without the blindness of passionate love, the darts of Cupid would be sent in vain, and the helpless and neglected, as so many are, would stand but little chance for that happiness which is associated with the institution of marriage. The world would be filled with old bachelors and old maids, and population would hopelessly decline among virtuous people. No scandal would have resulted from the ardent loves of Abelard and Heloise had they been united by that sacred relation which was ordained in the Garden of Eden if any woman says legouve may stand as the model of a wife in all her glory it is heloise passion without bounds and without alloy enthusiasm for the genius of abelard jealous care for his reputation a vigorous intellect learning sufficient to join in his labors and an unsullied name but those false sophistical ideas which early entered into monastic life and which perverted the christianity of the middle ages presented a powerful barrier against the instincts of nature and the ordinances of god celibacy was accounted as a supernal virtue and the marriage of a priest was deemed a lasting disgrace it obscured his fame his prospects his position and his influence it consigned him to ridicule and reproach he was supposed to be married only to the church and would be unfaithful to heaven if he bound himself by connubial ties says st jerome take axe in hand and hew up by the roots the sterile tree of marriage god permits it i grant but christ and mary consecrated virginity alas what could be hoped when the church endorsed such absurd doctrines 
hildebrand when he denounced the marriage of priests made war on the most sacred instincts of human nature he may have strengthened the papal domination but he weakened the restraints of home only a dark and beclouded age could have upheld such a policy upon the church of the middle ages we lay the blame of these false ideas she is in a measure responsible for the follies of abelard and heloise they were not greater than the ideals of their age had abelard been as bold in denouncing the stupid custom of the church in this respect as he was in fighting the monks of st denis or the intellectual intolerance of bernard he would not have fallen in the respect of good people but he was a slave to interest and conventionality he could not brave the sneers of priests or the opinions of society he dare not lose caste with those who ruled the church he would not give up his chances of preferment he was unwilling either to renounce his love or to avow it by an honorable open union at last his intimacy created scandal in the eyes of the schools and of the church he had sacrificed philosophy and fame to a second delilah and heloise was even more affected by his humiliation than himself she more than he was opposed to marriage knowing that this would doom him to neglect and reproach abelard would perhaps have consented to an open marriage had heloise been willing but with a strange perversity she refused her reputation and interests were dearer to her than was her own fair name she sacrificed herself to his fame she blinded herself to the greatest mistake a woman could make the excess of her love made her insensible to the principles of an immutable morality circumstances palliated her course but did not excuse it the fatal consequences of her folly pursued her into the immensity of subsequent grief and though afterward she was assured of peace and forgiveness in the depths of her repentance the demon of infatuated love was not easily exercised she may have been unconscious of degradation in the boundless spirit of self-sacrifice which she was willing to make for the object of her devotion but she lost both dignity and fame she entreated him who was now quoted as a reproach to human weakness since the languor of passion had weakened his power and his eloquence to sacrifice her to his fame to permit her no longer to adore him as a divinity who accepts the homage of his worshippers to love her no longer if this love diminished his reputation to reduce her even if necessary to the condition of a woman despised by the world since the glory of his love would more than compensate for the contempt of the universe what reproaches said she should i merit from the church and the schools of philosophy were i to draw from them their brightest star and shall a woman dare to take to herself that man whom nature meant to be the ornament and benefactor of the human race then reflect on the nature of matrimony with its littleness and cares how inconsistent is it with the dignity of a wise man st paul earnestly dissuades from it so do the saints so do the philosophers of ancient times think a while what a ridiculous association the philosopher and the chambermaids writing desks and cradles books and distaffs pens and spindles intent on speculation when the truths of nature and revelation are breaking on your eye will you hear the sudden cry of children the lullaby of nurses the turbulent bustling of disorderly servants in the serious pursuits of wisdom there is no time to be lost believe me as well withdraw totally from literature as attempt to proceed in the midst of worldly avocations science admits no participation in the cares of life remember the feats of xanthippe take counsel from the example of socrates who has been set up as a beacon for all coming time to warn philosophers from the fatal rock of matrimony such was the blended truth irony and wit with which heloise dissuaded abelard from open marriage he compromised the affair and contented himself with a secret marriage 
after a night spent in prayer said he in one of the churches of paris on the following morning we received the nuptial blessings in the presence of the uncle of heloise and of a few mutual friends we then retired without observation that this union known only to god and a few intimates should bring neither shame nor prejudice to my renown a cold and selfish act such as we might expect in louis the fourteenth and madame de maintenon yet nevertheless the feeble concession which pride and policy make to virtue the triumph of expediency over all heroic and manly qualities like maintenon heloise was willing to seem what she was not only to be explained on the ground that concubinage was a less evil in the eyes of the church than marriage in a priest but even a secret marriage was attended with great embarrassment the news of it leaks out through the servants the envious detractors of abelard rejoice in his weakness and his humiliation his pride now takes offence and he denies the ties and so does eloise the old uncle is enraged and indignant abelard justly fearing his resentment yea being cruelly maltreated at his instigation removes his wife to the convent where she was educated and induces her to take the veil she obeys him she obeys him in all things she has no will but his she thinks of nothing but his reputation and interest she forgets herself entirely yet not without bitter anguish she accepts the sacrifice but it costs her infinite pangs she is separated from her husband forever nor was the convent agreeable to her it was dull monotonous dismal imprisonment in a tomb a living death where none could know her agonies but god where she could not even hear from him who was her life yet immolation in the dreary convent where for nearly forty years she combated the recollection of her folly was perhaps the best thing for her it was a cruel necessity in the convent she was at least safe from molestation she had every opportunity for study and meditation she was free from the temptations of the world and removed from its scandals and reproach the world was crucified to her christ was now her spouse to a convent also abelard retired overwhelmed with shame and penitence at st denis he assumed the strictest habits mortified his body with severe austerities and renewed with ardor his studies in philosophy and theology he was not without mental sufferings but he could bury his grief in his ambition it would seem that a marked change now took place in the character of abelard he was less vain and conceited and sought more eagerly the consolations of religion his life became too austere for his brother monks and they compelled him to leave this aristocratic abbey he then resumed his lectures in the wilderness he retreated to a desert place in champagne where he constructed a small oratory with his own hands but still students gathered around him they too constructed cells like ancient anchorites and cultivated the fields for bread then as their numbers increased they erected a vast edifice of stone and timber which abelard dedicated to the holy comforter and called it the paraclete it was here that his best days were spent his renewed labors and his intellectual boldness increased the admiration of his pupils it became almost idolatry it is said that three thousand students assembled at the paraclete to hear him lecture what admiration for genius when three thousand young men could give up the delights of paris for a wilderness with abelard what marvellous powers of fascination he must have had this renewed success in the midst of disgrace created immeasurable envy moreover the sarcasms boldness and new views of the philosopher raised a storm of hatred galileo was not more offensive to the pedants and priests of his generation than abelard was to the schoolmen and monks of his day they impeached both his piety and theology he was stigmatized as unsound and superficial yet he continued his attacks his ridicule and his sarcasms in proportion to the animosities of his foes was the zeal of his followers who admired his boldness and arrogance 
At last a great clamor was raised against the daring theologian. St. Bernard, the most influential and profound ecclesiastic of the day, headed the opposition. He maintained that the foundations of Christianity were assailed. Even Abelard could not stand before the indignation and hostility of such a saint, a man who kindled crusades, who made popes, who controlled the opinions of the age. Abelard was obliged to fly, and sought asylum amid the rocks and sands of Brittany. The duke of this wild province gave him the abbey of St. Gildas, but its inmates were ignorant and disorderly, and added insubordination to dissoluteness. They ornamented their convent with the trophies of the chase. They thought more of bears and wild boars and stags than they did of hymns and meditations. The new abbot, now a grave and religious man, in spite of his opposition to the leaders of the orthodox party, endeavored to reform the monks, a hopeless task, and they turned against him with more ferocity than the theologians. They even poisoned, it is said, the sacramental wine. He was obliged to hide among the rocks to save his life. Nothing but aid from the neighboring barons saved him from assassination. Thus fifteen years were passed in alternate study, glory, suffering, and shame. In his misery Abelard called on God for help, his first great advance in that piety which detractors depreciated. He wrote also to a friend a history of his misfortunes. By accident this history fell into the hands of Heloise, then abbess of the Paraclete which Abelard had given her, and where she was greatly revered for all those virtues most esteemed in her age. It opened her wound afresh, and she wrote a letter to her husband, such as has seldom been equaled for pathos and depth of sentiment. It is an immortal record of her grief, her unsubdued passion, her boundless love, not without gentle reproaches for what seemed a cold neglect and silence for fifteen long and bitter years, yet breathing forgiveness, admiration, affection. The salutation of that letter is remarkable. Heloise, to her lord, to her father, to her husband, to her brother, his servant, yes, his daughter, his wife, yes, his sister. Thus does she begin that tender and long letter, in which she describes her sufferings, her unchanged affections, her ardent wishes for his welfare, revealing in every line not merely genius and sensibility, but a lofty and magnanimous soul. She glories in what constitutes the real superiority of her old lover. She describes with simplicity what had originally charmed her, his songs and conversation. She professes still an unbounded obedience to his will, and begs for a reply if for nothing else that she may be stimulated to a higher life amid the asperities of her gloomy convent yet write o write all that i may join grief to thy griefs and echo sighs to thine years are still mine and these i need not spare love but demands what else were shed in prayer no happier task these faded eyes pursue to read and weep is all i now can do Abelard replies to this touching letter coldly but religiously, calling her his sister in Christ, but not attempting to draw out the earthly love which both had sought to crush. He implores her prayers on his behalf. The only sign of his former love is a request to be buried in her abbey, in anticipation of a speedy and violent death. Most critics condemn this letter as heartless, yet it is but charitable to suppose that he did not wish to trifle with a love so great, and reopen a wound so deep and sacred. All his efforts now seem to have been directed to raise her soul to heaven. But his letter does not satisfy her, and she again gives vent to her passionate grief in view of the separation. O oh, inclement clemency! O oh, unfortunate fortune! She has so far consumed her weakness upon me that she has nothing left for others against whom she rages. 
i am the most miserable of the miserable the most unhappy of the unhappy this letter seems to have touched abelard and he replied to it more at length and with great sympathy giving her encouragement and consolation he speaks of their mutual sufferings as providential and his letter is couched in a more christian spirit than one would naturally impute to him in view of his contests with the orthodox leaders of the church and it also expresses more tenderness that can be reconciled with the selfish man he is usually represented he writes see dearest how with the strong nets of his mercy god has taken us from the depths of a perilous sea observe how he has tempered mercy with justice compare our danger with the deliverance our disease with the remedy i merit death and god gives me life come and join me in proclaiming how much the lord has done for us be my inseparable companion in an act of grace since you have participated with me in the fault and the pardon take courage my dear sister whom the lord loveth he chastiseth sympathize with him who suffered for your redemption approach in spirit his sepulchre be thou his spouse then he closes with this prayer when it pleased thee o lord and as it pleased thee thou didst join us and thou didst separate us now what thou hast so mercifully begun mercifully complete and after separating us in this world join us together eternally in heaven end of section two